Hi everyone, I'm Margot Faraci and this is Heart and Hustle, how to thrive in a crisis. Now there's a lot of bad news out there at the moment and it's valid, things have been difficult. But as a lawyer, as a leader, as a banker, as a parent, as a human, I know that crisis also brings opportunity to grow. So our job in this podcast is to show you people who are doing exactly that and provide some inspiration. Now off we go. Today I'm talking with Elizabeth Broderick. You've probably heard of her. Can you believe we've got her here today? She's a globally renowned leader, social innovator and advocate. She started her career as a lawyer and she's been Australia's longest serving sex discrimination commissioner as well. She did that for eight years. In 2016, she was awarded as an officer of the Order of Australia and she was also named New South Wales Australian of the Year. In 2017, Liz was appointed by the United Nations in Geneva as Special Rapporteur and Independent Expert, and she's currently Chair Rapporteur of the UN Working Group on Discrimination Against Women and Girls. Now, personally for me, Liz has had a huge impact. She was my first ever boss in the big bad corporate world, so it's an absolute privilege to have her here today. Liz Broderick, welcome to Heart and Hustle. Thank you, Margot. Lovely to be here. Liz, now we first met in 1999, 21 years ago. You were a partner at what was then Blake Dawson Waldron. Uh, it's now Ashurst. And I was a grad, just a kid with a dream, you know, with stars in my eyes. And at that time, you were evangelical about flexibility in the workplace. You were the only partner working three days a week, um, definitely at the firm, perhaps domestically and perhaps globally, I don't know. Um, but it was revolutionary at the time. And I remember, um, I don't think, I think you were the first one to have a Palm Pilot and you had to come in and dock it to upload all your emails on the day after the day you'd been off. And you used to say back then that clients don't care whether you're at home, in the office or on top of the Harbour Bridge, as long as they can get you and get an answer. You really, really were not quite a lone voice, but almost a lone voice in that time. You were a pioneer. So what do you make of that now where we're all working from home? Have we won the war on that, Liz? How great is that that we all have the option, or many of us? I mean, of course, if you're in essential, essential services, you don't have that option. But for many of us, we now have um, the option to work from home. And interestingly, we've learned that work is what you do, not where you go. Yeah. And I think it's been a real shift. And it made me kind of reflect on, well, what was holding us back before, because the fact is the technology has been here since, as you say, the Palm Pilot. Mm. I still remember I had the first ever Apple luggable. It was what? 11 kilos <laughs> and I thought I was the ants pants. It nearly gave me a huge backache and everything. But yeah, so what was it that was really the impediment to addressing flexible flexibility and working from home? And I think what the pandemic has demonstrated to me is that it was never the technology. No. It was really habit and inertia. Yeah. That's what was stopping us. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of good learnings that we can we can take from that. But in terms of, uh, you know, opening up the talent pool, particularly of women, particularly of people with disability, being able to recruit from anywhere pretty much across the world, um, uh, you know, the, the shift that we've seen during the COVID-19 pandemic, if there's one positive that might have come out of it, I think it's this ability to send away forever the assumption that work only happens in a central workplace. It's important. Now, <clears throat> talk about enabling us all to thrive in a crisis. Uh, when my mother was diagnosed with a terminal illness, I came to you and I resigned and I said, I can't work for you anymore. I have to go back to Swan Hill and um, well, she's in country Victoria. I know I've probably got three cousins listening there, so we better make sure everyone knows that. I said, I have to go back and look after her and I don't know how long it's going to take. 
And you said, you just wouldn't have it. You said, this is a test of my leadership. I'm an advocate for flexibility. So what you're going to do, Margot, is you're going to take your laptop and you're going to go home and you're going to look after your mother and you're going to log on when you can. And you're going to, we, we laughed and said, I'll be running the Swan Hill office of Blake Dawson Waldron. I think it's still the only um, major law firm to have a, a Swan Hill office. Didn't start a trend so amazingly. Because at that moment, you could have gone either way. You could have accepted my resignation. But you said to me, the exact words were, this is a test of everything I advocate. This is a test of my leadership. In a crisis, Liz, how important is it for us to test our leadership and really test where we're at with our values? I just think it's critical, Margot. I still remember the Swan Hill office, very <laughs> profitable office, I might say. <laughs> How much fun was that? Um, but I absolutely knew what you were going through as well because my mum was dying at the That's same right. time as yours. Yeah. I remember thinking, and if we don't stand for the ability of, you know, the people that work with us and care with the care, for, you know, we have great deep affection for, if we don't allow them to be with someone they love at the most critical point in their life. I mean, what do we stand for? So I think the ability to stand up for your values, particularly in a time of crisis, that's what really, I think, identifies true leaders. And the fact is, I've learned that we are what we do, not what we say. So we can talk all we want about flexible work. But if we don't ensure that those who need it actually get it, if we don't take strong and intentional action, then we're not leading in a way which I think is is relevant, particularly for these times, because, you know, there's so much um, disruption at the minute. Uh, it's easy to default to positions. What we need to do and the organisations that I'm seeing in the work that I'm doing now that are doing it best are the ones that are strongly aligned to purpose because it makes a lot of their decision making much easier. Yeah, exactly. So now, as you went from being a partner in a major law firm to the Sex Discrimination Commissioner and onto really what is now a global advocacy role and coming back to you being that lone voice back 21 years ago on something as benign, you know, at the time as flexible work, you now sometimes are alone or one of a minority voices standing up for women's rights right across the countries. You write to state leaders, nation state leaders. You stand in front of UN General Assembly. Give us a picture of where you think women's rights have gone over the time that you've been working in this and give us a sense of, of how brave you have to be. I mean, your kindness, we all know about, but that really rare combination of kindness and courage is what you've got. Tell us about how brave you have to be in those circumstances. Yeah, it's been such an interesting journey for me because, as you say, I stepped uh, down from being the Sex Discrimination Commissioner, which was just a brilliant job. I yeah. loved everything about that role because I got to work every day with people who want to create change and use their influence for good, you know, whether that be in the military or private sector, community organisations, unions. So it was a real privilege to do that work. And then when I thought about what I would do next, I realised that, you know, the work that I'd been doing was feeding my soul, um, that it was really a vocation, not a job, and that i that's the work that was mine to do in the world yeah. that I needed to continue to do. Mm. And I was fortunate, um, you know, to be selected as the lead rapporteur on the rights of women and girls across the world as part of a working group, the UN working group. Um, and it it has been a huge leap up. It has required huge amounts of courage. Um, and I can give you a, 
a couple of examples of that. I mean, for example, um, you know, Sarah, uh, every night, as you say, I write to the heads of nation states, drawing to their attention human rights violations that are happening in their country against women and girls. And, you know, often those letters are not well received. Mm. Um, you know, sometimes you're threatened. Um, sometimes, you know, the responses are, are truly inadequate. I'm thinking back to a response where I wrote about a human rights defender who had been arbitrarily retain, detained in this country. I'd written six weeks previously and then I wrote again. And not only was that beautiful, um, courageous women's human rights defender not released. She was ac actually executed the next day. So you are the keeper of thousands of stories of inequality and I have to say in many cases human suffering. But I think what I've been able to do over the last, you know, all the period that I've been working in this area of human rights is I've been able to hold the stories as really a form of emotional fuel so that when I get up to advocate for change, I don't mess with me Yeah, because it's not just Liz Broderick standing, demanding that things change. When I say demanding, always trying to build those bridges of understanding between different views, but absolutely be firm about what needs to happen. So it's not just Liz Broderick doing that. It's Liz Broderick's fueled by the thousands of instances of inequality that she's witnessed. Yeah. And that's what makes me courageous. Right. Um, that's where I find my courage uh, because I also remind myself that if I can't, you know, dig deep and find courage, because I don't believe courage is something that you learn. I think courage is something you have to find. And in a sense, courage begets courage. I'm so lucky to work with so many courageous individuals um, who are calling out, you know, abuses across the world. And so that makes me more courageous as well. So I think I've been able to find that courage in a way um, that hopefully makes me powerful, influential and effective. And as you say, building understanding of the other argument, like you've always worked so hard to build the bridges wherever you can instead of kind of writing off what other people would call the opposition. Yeah, you know, that's always been really important. You've and I bring this up because I'm thinking even back to 20 years ago when you indoctrinated me into all this. You know, this is how change happens. This is how transformation happens. And for me at that time, it was theoretical, but I understand it so much better now. But it was always all about going back to the other side and understanding them. That's all. That's something you've done naturally, I think. Yeah, I think it's so critical. Um, and you know, there's a couple of techniques that I use to mm. do that. The first thing. I think that's really important. It's a small shift, but it's quite profound. And that is whenever I enter into a conversation with anyone, but particularly someone who holds a diametrically opposed view to mm. me, I never assume ill intent. Yeah. I always assume good intent, or if I can't do that based on previous narratives, I'll always assume neutral um, intent. Because if I don't do that, the conversation doesn't have anywhere to go mm. and we can't together think about our common ground and what mm. we might be able to change together. So that's one thing. The other thing that I've found is a technique that works well is if you and I have totally different views, and we often will, um, I try to get behind your view and understand, well, what's what are the influences and the life experiences that you've had that have shaped you to hold this view? 
Because in a sense, if I just dismiss your view, not only am I dismissing your view, I'm dismissing all the influences of your family, your ancestors, and everyone who clearly shaped you to hold that view. So if I can step behind that and find out um, what, you know, what has influenced you, then maybe I can connect in differently. And just to give you one example, I mean, I work in a small working group of five rapporteurs. These are independent experts to the UN. Uh, we come from every region of the world, from Africa, from, um, you know, I'm talking Ethiopia, from Croatia, from Costa Rica, Nepal and, and Australia. I'm a stitched up white woman from Australia. <laughs> <laughs> and we traverse really emotional ground. We're looking at issues around sex work, abortion, um, surrogacy. You know, we couldn't have more different views often, depending whether we're part of a global north or the global south. And early on, we, you know, we used to really have strong contested views we, and we weren't able to really stake out common ground, but we decided to use this strategy of looking behind our views and seeing what shaped us. So we got to know each other much more, um, you know, in a much deeper level. And just to give you one idea, you know, we didn't all have the same views on women's reproductive rights and right. abortion. And what we found is that one of us who was less um, inclined to support that you know, when she she had in her country, her parents had been taken away when she was very young, maybe 10, and she'd been left as a 10-year-old to bring up her brother. Um, and the people who welcomed her in at that time was the Pentecostal church. Right. And so she'd adopted the values yeah. of a Pentecostal church, yeah. a strong, a beautiful woman, strong of faith. And we ought to understand that and then work out, okay, well, you know, we might have different views here, but what can we agree on? Yeah. And I think that's been, um, you know, something I've really learned that you you can't divide the world into them and us and we're the good guys and everyone who doesn't hold our same views as the bad guys. No, not at all. People hold views for a whole variety of reasons and we've got to try and build bridges of understanding and connect with them. And, of course, Liz, you've used that method in reverse as well to help someone who's sitting opposite you to see your point of view and you've are just the one that comes to mind is the one that was hugely effective and so important when uh, you were uh, met with a chief of army who didn't believe there was anything wrong with the culture in the army and couldn't understand why you as a sex discrimination commissioner wanted to um, conduct a cultural review and you did something which helped him understand your point of view. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, no, and he's a terrific guy, David Morrison, actually. And we are still remember our original discussions. They were very robust. <laughs> the gift of defence to me is that I can shove it right back to yeah. people um, in 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 a new and different way now. But um, yeah, no, I remember I travelled all across the military. It was one of the great privileges of my life to really do that work. But when I arrived on base or on a frigate or a you whatever it was, piece of military hardware, um, people would come and tell me their stories and many of them were women and they were often stories that had never been told before. Um, so uh, one of the strategies that I found that was very effective together with my team was to help those who had the most power in the military and that was the military chiefs actually hear the stories um, of those people who served the military loved it as much as the chiefs did, but for whom service had come at an unacceptable cost. And indeed, I still remember the first session we have, and it was with David Morrison because he was a particularly courageous military leader. Um, and I brought in a young woman. She duxed the course. She was 
the very talent that the military needed to secure Australia's, you know, um, military and security objectives. Um, and she told her story of sexual assault, of, you know, reporting it to the instructor, the very person that she should be able to go to for advice, uh, what had happened to her when she'd had the courage to speak out. And I think for the first time, um, not only did David hear that story, but he was able to feel it. Yeah. I'm very much believe that when we connect people's heads and their hearts, that's when they'll step up into much more intentional yeah. action. Well, you've talked, that's that's how you get your courage. That's exactly. You, yeah. That's exactly right yeah. because you're providing them with the emotional fuel yeah. to actually embark on what will be hard change. Because yeah. the thing about changing organisations on gender equality is it goes to the heart of people's belief systems. I mean, from the minute they put their feet on the ground, they're looking around, what are men doing, what are women doing, yeah. you know, what's mum doing, dad, you know, and they go out into the world, they have experiences and that just reinforces what we call their gender schema, their belief system about the place of men and women in the world. So when you go in there to try and change that, um, it's, you know, they'll have a reaction either violently negatively or violently positively but they will still engage. and But what you're trying to do is shift some of their perceptions and biases, experiences, and that's quite hard. So that's why I think that storytelling, the military have used it very effectively. They went on and did over 800 storytelling sessions. Incredible. And they now have a huge group within the military who are strong agents of change and are keeping the cultural reform agenda going. It's so important. But, you know, for anyone out there who's listening who you know, is frustrated about the change they're trying to affect and can't, you know, some great methods there used to great effect globally from you, Liz. Tell us about concept that you're talking a little bit about, which is around sexual harassment and, and disrupting the way we deal with that. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, it, a sexual harassment, I mean, to be honest, every woman has their story mm. and, Margot, you and I sh shared ours, um, but... Uh, what I've come to understand, given my role as Sex Discrimination Commissioner, but subsequently to that, and the work that I've been doing with the Male Champions of Change, which is really a strategy about engaging powerful, decent men to step up beside women, not to speak for them, not to rescue them, but to step up beside them and also take accountability and responsibility for promoting gender equality in Australia. And as part of that initiative and the, I've led 13 independent reviews of institutions from the military through to Qantas and other organisations looking at sexual harassment, organisational responses. As part of that, starting to understand that the current approaches that most organisations use, however well-intentioned, are not only not delivering for those impacted by sexual harassment, and the majority of those people are women, although not exclusively. There's some men that are sexually harassed as well. But they're not delivering for the individuals and also they're not delivering for the organisation. Um, and so we decided this year, off the back of also Kate Jenkins, the Sex Discrimination Commissioner, she did a brilliant report on respect at work, um, so strong evidence base, um, having listened to tens of thousands of women who've been sexually harassed, we decided that the current system needed disrupting. And there are a couple of key elements of that. One is that sexual harassment must be a leadership issue. It's a CEO and a board level issue. And if you're on the board and you're not hearing about it, 
that needs to shift and change. And not only that, we've reframed it really as a workplace health and safety issue because there's already well-established systems around workplace health and safety within organisations. Safety outcomes are not negotiated. Good. Um, And not only that, we've started to look at serial sexual harassers as workplace hazards. So if there's a fire over there, then every one of us has a responsibility to put it out. To grab a hose, yeah. If there's a serial perpetrator, that's all our problem because in a sense that's a workplace workplace hazard. Well, it's not safe. You're right. It's It's not not safe. safe. And we talk very much about psychological safety as part of overall safety. So just those shifts together with we've shift the transparency and confidentiality principles. And to do that, we had to work with some really brilliant lawyers Mm -hmm. To let them know that as a group of 270 CEOs, that's the number that make up the male champions to change, they cover about 15% of Australia's workforce, that we want to shift. We want to shift to enable women who've been impacted or anyone who's been impacted to tell their own story in their own words at a time of their own choosing. So we're not going to engage in NDAs, non-disclosure agreements, to the extent that we have before to protect our reputation. We're not going to treat it just as a legal or, you know, corporate reputation, HR problem. What we're going to do is infuse the humanity back into it and we are going to treat it um, in the way that it should be treated, which is dignity and respect lying at the heart. So we will name, if you're a senior a perpetrator. So the allegations against senior men, largely it's men perpetrating sexual harassment, even against other men. If if you come to our organisation and you do carry on with that behaviour, we're no longer allow, going to allow you to just slip out to spend more time with your family and exit quietly. We're going to name the behaviour. Likely we're going to name you and we're going to ensure that on your way out, you're not paid out mm. with what has often been referred to as hush money. So that is a real shift. Massive. It's Massive. disrupting the system. 100%. And you will, uh, you know, if you look at a number of the high profile ones that have happened recently, yeah. some of them have been actually the organisational approach has been according to this new model yeah. of disrupting the system. So um, for those of your listeners who are interested, Margot, it's all available on the Male Champions of Change website. We just as an off offside, I've been connected to uh, Gretchen Carlson in, in the US, who many will know is the um, uh, you know news anchor who actually uh, blew the whistle on sexual harassment within Fox News. That's right. That was Bombshell, the movie Bombshell. Bombshell yeah. or The Loudest Voice yeah, right. on Stan. Yeah. Yep. And she just said to me even just yesterday that if we had had something like this mm. four years ago when I tried to bring my complaint, it would have been a totally different experience. So I think it is disruptive. We've got so much interest in it. And look, what we're proposing may not work in every circumstance, absolutely, but we want the default position to move from shutting and silencing the woman. And shame. And shame. The shame that the, that the woman feels around I'm speaking up and I'm in trouble now and my career's over, all yeah. that. All that, that you will never work again. We want that to totally shift from that's a default position to shifting the other way. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm really excited about the possibility when all of us get on board mm. and we say this is all our problem, men, women, leaders at every level. Yeah. And together we're going to shift this system. And it's another example. I remember when you put Male Champions of Change together, it's another example of you going out there 
people going, why is she talking to men? She's the st- she's she's there for women. Why is she talking to men? But you knew we don't go up alone. And it's something, you know, interviewing leaders in this podcast, that when people succeed, there's this common theme of partnering mm-hmm. and going up together. And so um, you knew that you had to engage men. And look at these men now who have put this together, 15% of Australia's workforce. So well done to you and well done to them. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. And, look, it will be two steps forward and one back. You know, it'll be, you know, the wheels will fall off along the way somewhere. <laughs> but I think, you know, we've shown that a different approach is possible. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I still remember, Margot, I was in South Australia um, early on when I just become a sex discrimination commissioner. I went out on my listening tour. I still remember running a young women's focus group with women who were in their first job. So they were maybe 16 yeah. to 20. Often they had jobs while they're at school or uni or whatever. And I think nearly three quarters of those women could recount to me an episode which I would have characterised as sexual harassment, um, you know, from being pushed up against a wall by the boss or, you know, and this is in small business mm. as well or being asked to wear clothes which were clearly inappropriate or whatever. Every one of them had a story and it was one young woman. She turned to me and she said, look, Liz, I know if my uncle does it, it's not okay. But if it's my boss or my manager, well, maybe that's just the way work is in Australia and I've just got to be okay with that. And I found that as, you know, it was really a moment of reflection and it's when also I set my strategic agenda and said sexual harassment will absolutely be on that agenda just as it is, has been really in a really significant way on Kate Jenkins' agenda. Um, But it was a a moment, once again, getting the emotional fuel. It was a moment I was determined to do something about that. And can I tell you, um, with all the work all of us have done, someone still said that to me last week. I was trying to Mm. encourage someone to speak up and she said back to me, and quite validly I get it, it's her experience, But that's just the way it is. I just have to put up with it, you know. Mm. So it's so much more work to do. And thank God you and the male champions of change are doing it. The The last thing I want to ask you is about self-care, Liz. You have huge pressure on you. And I've watched over the last 20 years, you know, going from what looked like to me as a grad, you know, a really high-pressure job as a partner of a major law firm, but going you know, to even more pressure, public profile. Now you're doing this global work. You go into refugee camps. You see women in prison in terrible conditions. How do you look after yourself? You've been a mother the whole time I've known you. You're right. Our mothers kind of died at the, at the same time. I think your mother left you some great clues about how you can look after yourself. But tell us how you do that now, how you look after yourself now. And have you got better at that over the years? I think I have got a bit better at it, Margot. I mean, it is absolutely critical. What I came to understand is, you know, if you're someone who cares deeply about a cause or a movement, for me it's about gender equality across the world, that that movement will only ever be as strong as the individuals that make it up. And this is what the human rights defenders have taught me. They've taught me that being well, both physically and mentally, is the ultimate act of empowerment. And in many nations across the world, it's the ultimate act of political defiance. So we will be well, both physically and mentally. And that's really the foundation for um, the self-care practice, because I can tell you, you know, often it seems so heavy. Mm. And you can get to a place where you actually lose faith in the possibility of change. You start asking, well, why can't I stop violence against women? That's my life's work. Mm. 
you know, does my work matter? Do I matter? And mm. you go on and, you know, on a not down a rabbit hole, to be honest. Which, which on everyone can relate job. to, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. So you do that. So for me, I've had to develop, firstly, a, a couple of things. And I think particularly for women, it's important that we start to believe that who we are is enough. Mm. Because so many of women I meet, you know, oh, I need to be smarter. I need to be more strategic. I need to be better at finance. I need to be more networked and connected. No. Who I am is enough. Mm. I have everything I need right here, Mm. right now to create the change Mm. I want to see in the world. And to really believe that, you need techniques to keep you mentally well. And for me, that's about having a regular practice. I mean, I've been meditating for the last decade probably. Mm. It's, It's a foundation practice for me. I don't do it every day. I do it more or less depending on the environments right. in which I'm coming into. Yeah. Um, so, and I'm not recommending meditation for everyone by any means. I mean, people. This is for you. This yeah, is what works for you. This is for me. Yeah. But I do think having a practice is important. My Aboriginal friends talk to me about connection to land mm. and culture and, you know, they have incredible collective care there as well. Others will have faith and prayer. Being in nature. Mm. I notice for me being in nature now is just so important. Well, I hear you talk about it all the time now and you yeah. never used to. I never 20, did. Yeah. yeah, so this is an evolution that, too. That yeah. and also poetry. Yeah. Just being able to lock, uh, unlock some of the emotion um, through beautiful poetry and whatever. So just to give you one really concrete example, just before the pandemic struck, I led the UN's country mission to Greece and I... Um, I was in the refugee camps on the Greek islands. I, you know, your listeners might know about Moria Camp, which is on Lesbos. Last time on, I was on Lesbos, I was with my cocktails, yeah, you know, in, yeah, the, in, in the swimmers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah good time. <laughs> but this time earlier this year, it wasn't, that wasn't the case. And um, I went into Moria Camp, which was built for 1,500, but it actually had close to 20,000 people were ultimately there and I interviewed women who were escaping violence from Syria and you know Iran Iraq from um you know from Afghanistan and whatever I traveled with translators I knew it was going to be really tough um and I also felt so helpless and powerless to create change because what power did I have to change the immigration policies of European nations. So the work that I did, the pre-work was really um, getting more and more into my meditation, covering myself with white light, remembering that while I might be powerless externally, I could still be incredibly powerful internally. And we follow a lot of the work of Otto Sharma out of MIT who says, uh, you know, one of his key beliefs is that the quality of the intervention depends on the interior quality of the intervener. And coming back once again to I will be well and I will be powerful. So the ability to just surround myself with white light, to remind myself I'm powerful, I'm influential, I will be heard and to really ensure that how I turned up to bear witness to the things that I saw and heard there was one which might radiate power to others as well. So these are some of the techniques that I use. And just I'd say one final technique is when you're working at the global level, particularly around global system change, the idea that any given action that you might take will result in a particular result, it's it's just an illusion. Forget it's it. It's so complex. Yeah. So now what I've learned to do is I set an intent and I I basically put that intent out to the universe and I'm guided rather than by any having any ind- 
any given impact, what I'm guided by is the truth, the value and the rightness of a work that I'm doing. So if I keep that as my compass, that I'm this is my work to do in the world, that it, it's my truth, you know, the value, I believe it has really significant value and it is right. Um, then those are the guiding principles that I hold on to. And that's what allows me to be energetically replenished and sane. And I just want to give one last thing that a beautiful woman from Ethiopia told to me the other day, because that's the other thing I do. Every person I meet around the world, I I ask them, I always ask them, how do you feel? Mm -hmm. How do you stay energetically replenished Mm. in a world which is changing so rapidly and often from women's rights perspective, you know, a regression. Full despair, really. Yeah, full yeah. despair. How do you stay energetically replenished? And this beautiful woman, when I was in Ethiopia earlier the year, she, oh, actually late last year, she said to me, she said, look, Liz, think of those big trees on the African prairie. She said, you know, it started with a seed and then some rain came and then wind blew it here and then the sun came. She said, Liz, you do your part but know that I'll do mine. Yeah. And I thought it's such a beautiful empowering. And I hold that. I hold on to that in my heart. I'll do my part and I know that others will do theirs. And that is how change is affected. I just want to point out that we have a brilliant lawyer here who's also, you did computer science, I think, as well yeah. at uni. Yeah. So this is, this is a clever, smart, book smart Great businesswoman, always knew how to make money in that really tough environment of a major law firm. And she's talking about setting an intention. She's talking about white light. So anyone who's listening, the three cousins in Swan Hill, this is mainstream, okay? (laughs) This, This works. I'm telling you. That's fantastic. I do remember also having a lot of fun with you, Liz. And also for everyone listening, when I first started working with Liz, the kids were tiny. I think Lucy was probably three, which means Tommy was four or five. And um, for all the parents who are listening, um, the, you know, that Liz was always really happy with the imperfection of, you know, the cake stalls at school. It's fine, Margot. You just buy a cake, just slap on a bit of cream. No one will know the difference. Off we go. So uh, everyone out there trying to be perfect on that stuff, just know, <laughs> you know, that it doesn't happen, okay? It doesn't happen. <laughs> exactly. Um, Liz, it's been just such a privilege to have you here today. Thank you so much for your time. It's been fantastic. Oh, thanks, Margot. And congratulations to you on the podcast. It's fantastic. And we'll find a way to work again in the future, we which will. will be great. Fantastic. Yeah. Thanks, Liz. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. I hope from this you've got some ideas and some themes about how to thrive in a crisis. Now, you can definitely hit the subscribe button if you want to hear more of the show and give us a rating as well. Thanks again for listening. See you soon.